Let me add my welcome. I'm Mike, I'm the minister here, and I'll be uh, speaking on the Seventh Commandment and uh, leading us in uh, something called the Lord's Supper uh, in a few minutes' time. Now, we're doing a series on the Ten Commandments, uh, and we've reached the seventh one, as you've noticed, which means we need to talk about sex today. In the words of the late 90s hip-hop act, Salt and Pepper, let's talk about sex, about all the good things and the bad things that may be. I'm not going to try and rap, okay? I know that middle-aged white guys shouldn't do that. Now, three comments before we jump in. Firstly, there is some adult content in this sermon. Uh, so if you're listening at home, it gets recorded, by the way, on this iPhone. If you're listening at home, or one of the two people who listen to us on iTunes, be careful. I don't want you to get in trouble with your nan. Secondly, we're going to talk about adultery. Now, more seriously, uh, we all know, and some of you know better than others, that adultery is excruciatingly painful, and that pain doesn't just go away. Some people here will struggle with memories and experiences and maybe ongoing situations, and I want to acknowledge that up front, and I say that I have prayed for you uh, whilst preparing this message, uh, specifically praying that as you hear the Bible's teaching, that in some measure healing would come that the Holy Spirit would speak to you through the word and that there would be some healing going on. We're not just thinking about the devastation of sin today, but the positive teaching about marriage and sex uh, and the grace of God to broken people and sinners. And thirdly, this is actually the first time that my parents have been to Grace Church, there they are, which means that I have to preach about sex in front of my mum. So pity me. Right, these Ten Commandments were given to the Israelites after they had been set free. They were not given as a set of hoops to jump through, a sort of performance-related pay scheme. Uh, You know, if you can just about keep these or behave yourself, do a good enough job, then I'll maybe set you free. No, God took them just as they were. These people were just as immoral as their Egyptian neighbours, and they worshipped the same idols. They had nothing to commend them. God did not rescue them because they were good or of anything in them, but he rescued them because of his own free and sovereign love and because of his promises. He'd made a covenant with their forefathers and he keeps his promises. So the Ten Commandments are not hoops to jump through. They are principles of how to live now that you are free. Now that you're a free person, how to live a free life. One preacher called them principles for how to live a life of greatness. A life of greatness. A great life. And the seventh commandment shows how to live a great free life in the area of sexuality. Now to most people, the idea that a commandment about sex or rules and principles about sex could enable freedom is just nonsense. It's a non sequitur. Surely, we think, freedom equals no boundaries and rules. Or at least only the boundaries that are self-imposed by mutually consenting adults. Well, is a bird free to fly in the river? Most birds are gloriously free when they observe certain basic principles like flying in the air. I'm not talking about penguins. Flying underwater is not going to give a bird freedom. 
or take the fish, which is gloriously free to swim in the currents of the ocean, but loses its freedom when it tries to swim on the beach. The Bible teaches that we human beings are created persons. We've been made in the image of God, and the Creator knows what's best for His creatures. So this seventh commandment is the manufacturer's instructions on sex. It applies to all human beings, and when it is broken, people break. So although it will challenge our culture deeply, and it may challenge us deeply, we mustn't apologize for that. These are God's words. Now the seventh commandment, if you want to turn it up again, Exodus chapter 20, is deceptively simple, very short. Just two words in the original Hebrew language, and five words in the English, you shall not commit adultery. And you might think that we'd be in for a short sermon, but don't worry, I've got plenty to say. Three points today, great sin, great sex, and a great saviour. First of all, great sin. What is exactly being forbidden in this commandment? In ancient Egypt and some of Israel's other neighbours, there were laws about adultery. It was referred to by a euphemism, the great sin, the A word. They called it the great sin. And that is what this commandment is about. In the first instance, it is talking about sexual fidelity within marriage. At its most basic level, the seventh commandment sets the bar very high for marital fidelity. It's right up there in the Ten Commandments. It comes right after the one about murder. The language used is strong and binding and permanent. It's not contingent. You shall never commit adultery. No messing about. No equivocation. No grey areas. God loves sex. God loves marriage. He created it. And God hates adultery. Never, ever go there. So at its most basic level, the commandment is there to protect marriage in society. The biblical ideal for marriage is one man and one woman in a lifelong monogamous union. Becoming one flesh, bound together by a covenant, a promise, a binding agreement. Now given the cultural world that the Old Testament was written in, there is occasionally some bigamy and even polygamy. But this was not the norm, and in some cases it's kind of a concession, it's not ideal. The overall biblical teaching is that marriage ought to be monogamous, and heterosexual, and for life. Now, why is this commandment so strong? Because it wants to teach us that marriage is sacred. (coughs) Marriage is sacred, we need to hear that because our culture is jaded and cynical about marriage. Marriage is sacred. Now, in the ancient world, other cultures had laws about marriage, but Israel was different because their laws, the other cultures' laws, were not enforced by the gods. They weren't a matter of the religion. Whereas in Israel, it's right here in the Ten Commandments. The living God, the only God who is, the one who says his name is Yahweh, I am who I am, gets involved in marriage. How important it is to him. Right after the sacredness of human life is the sacredness of marriage. Why is it so important? Marriage is foundational. It's foundational to society, for a society to be stable. For the family, it's it's foundational for the strength of the family. A faithful and loving marriage is the context for the rearing of children and of personal stability. 
Those of you who've lived through divorce know how damaging the breakdown of a marriage is. And as a nation, Israel needed to know not to fool around with marriage. And the traditional wedding service is based on this teaching. Marriage is a way of life made holy by God. Start sounding Anglican for a minute. And blessed by the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, with those celebrating by a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Marriage is a sign of unity and loyalty which all should uphold and honour. It enriches society and strengthens community. No one should enter into it lightly or selfishly, but reverently and responsibly in the sight of Almighty God. Why not entered lightly and selfishly? Because it's for life. Unless something goes badly wrong, marriage is for life. And nothing undermines a marriage like sexual infidelity. It is utterly destructive. It rips the guts out of another human being. And even when they can find it in themselves to forgive, the pain never quite goes away. And it's hard to trust. It leaves scar tissue. So, let's honour marriage. Let's protect it. Let's treat it with reverence. Let's never do anything to undermine it. And if you are married, and at least 25 or 30 couples in the church, if you are married or you will be one day, make sure you guard and protect and invest in your marriage, especially in the sphere of physical intimacy. Make sure you enjoy sex to the maximum. But is that all? Is that the end of the story? Not quite. There's a lot more, actually. We need to understand the way that laws work in the ancient world. Douglas Stewart is an Old Testament scholar, very brilliant man. He's got a PhD in Bible from Harvard University. He knows 17 languages. He's published numerous scholarly works on the Bible. He also taught two courses that nearly killed me a few years ago when I studied under him. And Douglas Stewart, Dr. Stewart explains that law in the ancient world and ancient societies is paradigmatic. Now stay with this, I know it's going to sound irrelevant, but it, it will make sense in a minute. Paradigmatic, law is paradigmatic, means that it works by examples or principles. And that's very different from law in modern society. Most modern societies have an exhaustive law code, meaning that every action that society wishes to regulate must be mentioned in a separate law, or people will find a loophole. Now, I asked our resident legal expert, Ralph Cunnington, where is he? Has he gone out with the kids? I asked Ralph, how many laws are there in English law? Ralph taught law at university. I thought he was a good person to ask. He replied, English law is case-based. This means the law is contained in case reports. There are about 7 to 12, 800-page volumes every year. Okay. So between 7 and 12, 800 page volumes of laws published every year, and the law goes back centuries. So how many laws are there? Ralph's word, masses. I don't think he knows the answer, never mind. Masses of laws, but not really in the ancient world. They've got fewer laws, but their laws give models of behavior and models of punishment, and then the people have to work out for themselves how to apply it. So it's based on samples, samples of behaviour. They give guiding principles, but they don't work out all the detail. And there are no, really, that way, no room for loopholes. I'll give you an example. Exodus 22, verse 1, says you should make repayment for a stolen ox or a stolen sheep. 
But no Israelite would say, aha, I stole a goat, so I don't have to pay you back. They understand the principle. Exodus 21 verse 18, there are penalties if you hit someone with a fist or with a stone. But no Israelite would say, ah, I kicked him with my foot and hit him with a plank. So it doesn't count. Such arguments would insult the intelligence of everybody concerned. This system relied on common sense and wisdom and eliminated the possibility of loopholes, getting off on a technicality. And that's what's going on in these Ten Commandments. We already saw it last week, actually, in the Sixth Commandment. You shall not murder. It's about protecting the sanctity of human life. But, turning it round, it's about cherishing life in all its fullness. Now on to the Seventh Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. This isn't just about adultery and sexual fidelity in marriage. At the heart of it is a demand for radical sexual purity. Now, if you're not convinced, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we see how the Lord Jesus Christ understood this commandment. Tolly's read it out for us. If you want to look up, it's uh, page 977. Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, do you see what Jesus just did? He takes the commandment and he unpacks the heart of it. He says it's not just about physical fidelity within marriage. It's about a lifestyle that keeps sex pure. It's about taking all necessary steps to avoid sexual sin, even at the level of a look that has lustful intent in the heart. Now, on this point, Jesus is on a collision course with our entire culture. In 1943, the writer C.S. Lewis gave a talk on BBC Radio. He said, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theatre by simply bringing in a covered plate onto the stage, and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Wouldn't you think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And wouldn't anyone who'd grown up in a different world think there was something equally wrong about the state of the sex instinct among us? Now, if that was true in 1943, how true is it now, 70 years later? Something has gone absolutely bananas with the sex instinct. Talk about the great sin. In our culture, lust is not merely excused and tolerated, but it is celebrated. It is big business. The pornographic industry is bigger than Microsoft, Google, eBay, Amazon, Yahoo, and Apple combined. Our generation has seen an increase in organised lust that is unprecedented in human history. 
When my father was a boy in the 1950s, the closest boys could get to porn was the lingerie section of a clothing catalogue. Kind of gathered around it, around behind the bike sheds. When I was a boy in the 70s, you could get hold of hardcore or softcore pornographic magazines. Sometimes you'd find them out in the woods or some guy had them under his bed. What about my children? Just another generation on. The possibilities for pornography now are actually endless. They're endless. They seek you out. You don't have to look for it. You open an email account and somebody will send you something. It's accessible, affordable, and anonymous. And this is now leading, sadly, to sicker and sicker pornography as users who are hardened by normal sex look for ever darker thrills. Kids grow up sharing images of sexual violence by email and mobile phone. So we are now in a storm, and it shows no sign of abating. So now there is no more urgent call upon Christians in our generation than to take up the, the arms in the fight for sexual purity. There's a war on. Now the best book I've seen on this subject is called Captured by a Better Vision by Tim Chester, who's a minister in Sheffield. Brilliant book. Tim Chester paints a, a, a picture that will be familiar to some of us. We see a woman in the street. We take a second glance. We look at her breasts. We imagine her undressed. We remember a past sexual encounter or a porn movie. We play through a sexual fantasy. As we go home, we consider looking at porn on the internet. Maybe, we say to ourselves, maybe not, but not a firm no. I'll not look at porn, we tell ourselves. I'll just surf around a bit, all the time hoping for some titillating material. And then it's just a quick look. By now, we're hooked. Lust overtakes us. The temptation was just too strong, we tell ourselves afterwards. But it wasn't too strong at four o'clock, when you first saw the woman in the street. Each step was another opportunity to escape temptation. The way of escape was there all the time. The problem was that we didn't want to take it. There are always many turning points before the point of no return. We need to get into the habit of saying no the moment the thought arises. But we also need to get into the habit of not just saying no, but saying yes to the glory of God and the beauty of Christ. He quotes a man called Brian who says, the most successful attempts I've had at resisting pornography have been when I've run to Christ at times of temptation. Singing to God at times of weakness helps me to remember the gospel. I tend not to struggle when I'm trusting God and on fire for him at the time, unsurprisingly. That's how lust works. Now, one survey found that 50%, 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women are addicted to porn. 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women. That would mean that one in three people at our church are struggling with porn. Maybe more, given the age of the congregation. One in three. And statistically, most porn addicts are married. Now, how are we going to deal with this great sin from our culture? The first thing is to get real. It's the elephant in the room. 
I'm tempted to ask you to put your hand up in the air if you've never viewed pornography. But I wonder if that would be unfair. You know what we're getting at. You know the extent of the challenge. How are we going to deal with it? Well, the book, and I can only commend this to you, suggests there are five weapons we have against pornography. The first one we need is abhorrence of it. We need to hate porn. We then need to adore God and see him for who he is and what he's done for us and and how wonderful and beautiful God is. We need assurance of grace, that God's grace, as Seb mentioned earlier on, is so deep we could never exhaust it. It is not based on our performance, but on his sheer radical love for us. We need, need then avoidance of temptation and accountability to others. And I would re- recommend the book highly for the way he unpacks these different five elements. But where do you think most people, or I think particularly most Christian men, tend to camp out? Where do you think? I think it's the fourth one, avoidance of temptation. It's just, I'm just going to try and avoid it, and maybe I'll be accountable to others if I can pluck up enough courage. It's not enough. We need to take up all five ingredients to assault this enemy of our soul on every single level. Do you mean business? Now, this is not just about porn, but it's about lust in general. The great sin that our culture celebrates and pretends is sexual freedom, but it's actually not free at all. There's nothing freeing about lust. It is actually the definition of slavery, as you may know. Now, we've got to be captured by a better vision than that. So let me ask, will you commit to dealing with this sin today? Not just on your own, but you commit to helping each other with it. A number of our men are meeting this afternoon for something that they call man time. They share what's going on in life. They pray for each other. You men who meet, will you commit to helping each other destroy this sin so it has no stronghold left in your heart? Now, so far, we've focused on the negative, on the prohibition, you shall not. But for every thou shalt not is a glorious thou shalt. For every negative command, there's a positive implication. And I want to think about the flip side now of the commandment, never commit adultery, which is enjoy marital sex to the maximum. Great sex. The Bible has lots of positive teaching about sex. There's a whole book dedicated to romance, sex and marriage called the Song of Songs. Then there's a book of Proverbs which says, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you be ever captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? But the most earthy treatment of sex in marriage is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which Tolly read for us earlier on. And I think we need to look at that. It's page 1150 to get some bearings on this subject. Page 1150, 1 Corinthians 7. It's interesting. This was written by a man who was probably single at the time. His name was Paul. And he's writing to a church in a big city that's very moral, very sexualized city. And this church is struggling with and working through what it means to follow Jesus in the area of sex. And in verse 1, he says, he quotes them. He says, now concerning the matters that you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Seems odd. Recent research has shown that that word, have sexual relations, actually is not talking about sex generally. It's, it's talking about a man 
using a woman for sexual gratification. What the Corinthians is saying, if you excuse the uh, vernacular, is it's not good for a man to shag a woman. And Paul agrees. Okay, he says, what's going on in this culture is not biblical. But in case his readers conclude that there's something wrong with sex itself, he immediately says, sex is good. Because of the temptation, verse 2, to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Great mutuality there. Husband and wife. Very radical for the time it was written, when it was all about husbands' rights over wives. He says it's mutual. And look at the the language he uses about sex. Giving. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. This isn't selfish, it's mutual. Self-giving. Not a demanding of rights. Self-giving with respect to the spouse. He says, don't deprive each other. And if you must, for some reason, not for long. Now, there are no rules here about how often married couples should have sex. That's completely down to the couple. But the key is, husbands and wives are to make sure that your spouse is sexually satisfied. Sometimes that is going to mean holding back if your partner is not in the mood or ill or stressed. And one should never be selfish. At other times, it might mean doing one for the team even if you don't feel like it, out of love to meet the spouse's needs. If your spouse is not sexually satisfied, then it is up to you to do something about it. Now, some people are gifted with great self-control, and they, just don't, they can live without a, a sexual relationship. They can live quite, function quite happily at being single. And Paul says that he himself is like that, And he's used his gifts to stay single and serve the Lord with undivided attention. But he also says, be realistic. Verse 9, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So what's the cash value of this teaching? It's this, that if God has given us a good gift, it should be enjoyed as fully as possible within the right parameters. And the key to great sex is... That it is not self-serving. The key to great sex, great sex happens when you delight your spouse. You know, all those magazines, all those women's magazines, Marie Claire and all the rest of them, it was about how can you have, have multiple orgasms and have a great sex life. Here's the key. You can cancel your subscription to Marie Claire. The key to a great sex life is delighting your spouse. Now, I want to speak to husbands for a moment You men, this is the key to a great sex life. It is to give your wife maximum pleasure, not yourself. All right? The key to a great sex life is to give your wife maximum pleasure, not yourself, asking what is going to delight her. Now, some of you men, I think, your marriage is not a place of greatness because your wife is not that excited about sex, probably because sex is all about you. It's not about her satisfaction, it's about you. Stop blaming her, accept that it's your responsibility, and take action to delight her. If you can be prepared to make sex the most satisfying experience for her that it can, the most orgasmic experience for her, 
then that will unlock the potential of the marriage and the potential is amazing. The engine room is the bedroom. Is she starting to nag? Don't blame her. Look in your own backyard. Listen to her. What's underneath the nagging? Is it your failure to absorb responsibility in some area? Now, this is broader than just sex. Have you changed that light bulb? The one that she's mentioned 50 times. All right, you can't do DIY. Have you made the phone call? Does it always end up falling on her shoulders? Does she feel like the apple of your eye, or does she feel like left luggage? Do you tell her that she looks gorgeous, that you fancy her rotten, that you can't wait to get her in bed? Do you still tell her those things? Do you text her and think of her and call her during the day to let her know that she's important? Does she have your attention, or does she have to stamp her foot to get it? Now, both husband and wife are responsible for the health of a marriage, but biblically, the weight rests on the man, because he's supposed to be the leader. Husbands, how is it going? Is your marriage a place of greatness? What about the bedroom? There are five things I've learned about great sex. Some of them I wish I knew 14 years ago when I got married. Firstly, foreplay begins at breakfast. Foreplay begins at breakfast. Now, I don't mean trying to grab your wife's boobs while she's having a bowl of cornflakes. And that's what some of you are thinking. Start the day well. Get out of bed and start serving her. Does she like a cup of tea? You make it. Be attentive. Make the first moves in demonstrating affection, and she will appreciate you making the first moves sexually later in the evening. Somebody said that women are slow cookers and men are microwaves. Men can be turned on very fast. Women need to get started in the morning. Takes a while to build up. Secondly, be quick to apologize. Do not sulk. Sulking is for boys. Men apologize and move on. Your wife will be aroused when you act like a man. Thirdly, make her feel like a million dollars. Compliments. Thoughtful little gifts. Flowers. Don't buy her a hoover. <laughs> Unless you want to spend the night in the doghouse. Have a lingerie budget. Don't go cheap. Here's what I got you in the sales. It makes her feel great. Fourthly, I only found out about this recently. <laughs> outer course is more important than intercourse. Now, outer course, funny word, is all the stuff you do on the outside that you're kind of tempted to do when you're dating and you're not supposed to do because you're a Christian. Like feeling boobs on the outside of clothing. French kissing. Long lingering looks. Holding hands. It's the stuff that guys are gagging to do when they're dating and they can't be bothered with once they get married. But actually to women, it's more important than intercourse. If you're seeking her satisfaction sexually, everyone's a winner. Fifthly, stop whinging. Self-pity is the British vice. It's also deeply unattractive. British men once ruled the world and won two world wars. Now we have man flu. We are famous for whinging. Australians call us whinging pongs. It is pathetic. Stop doing it for the sake of a great sex life. 
You men, what is it like to share a bed with you? Now, I'm saying this, and I live on the chubby side of life these days, okay? But if you are really overweight, that is not going to delight your spouse. Exercise some self-control. Unless you think that sweets, chocolate, puddings, crisps, and junk food are more important than a marriage of greatness. Do you come to bed overweight and smelling like cheese and onion crisps? Don't complain if your sex life is not a place of greatness. Take the lead. Now, wives, I want to ask you a few questions, and I speak very differently to ladies. Firstly, what do you like to live with? Are you high maintenance? It's not sexy. Two, do you nag? Has the nagging factor gone up since you got a ring on your finger? My wife always says, I never nagged until we got married. How attractive do you think nagging is on a scale of 1 to 10? Three, how often do you have a headache, are too tired, or just not in the mood? Are you sexually available to your husband, or is he often found skirting around the perimeter like a hungry dog? Do you ever do one for the team? Fourthly, do you make yourself as beautiful for your husband now as you used to before you got married? Or are you more likely to get dressed up when you're going out with friends? Fifthly, do you treat your husband like a king or like a twit? The way you speak to him, the way you speak about him to other people, the way you respond to his failures, do you point out his incompetence? Or do you make him feel like a man? Are you proud of him? Does he know it? Now you see how this works both ways? But it does work. If you attend to these kind of things, sex will get better and better with every passing year. And to both husbands and wives, seek his kingdom first. If it's all about you two and your marriage and you're always going off together and resting together and investing in each other, it just turns inward. It just shrivels. It loses its power. Don't make your marriage the centre of everything. Make the gospel the centre of your marriage and your marriage will flourish. Sexual enjoyment in marriage is not a rest from mission. It is generated and kept alive as we are on mission together in the world. So, have we strayed from teaching about the seventh commandment? No. Because one way we ensure we keep the commandment is by making sex a place of greatness in marriage. Make it as good as it can be. The glory of God's provision of sex within a covenant, is that you have a whole lifetime of practice with the same person. A whole lifetime of shared memories and experiences that will enrich your sex life. It's so much more deeply satisfying than a series of strangers. Friends of mine who've had a promiscuous lifestyle and then entered into a vibrant marriage know the difference. It's like the difference between cheap fast food and a gourmet dinner. Now, what about unmarried people here today? Some can be contented to be single and decide they want to use that ability to serve the Lord with their time. That's great. But even if you're not able to take that path, make the most of your time for the kingdom. Don't waste your single years wishing that you were married. You've got so much free time now. Are you using it for Jesus and for his kingdom? How much time do you spend reading the Bible, praying in Christian service, investing in Christian friends, sharing the gospel, helping the poor? Now, I want to speak to single guys for a moment. 
Some of you single guys, you want to be married, but it's very unlikely at the moment because it's all about you. And that is unattractive. No woman wants to marry a man who is looking for a mother. She wants to marry a man. Now that doesn't mean somebody with big biceps and an 18 inch neck, but someone who takes responsibility. It's the essence of being a man. It's nothing to do with muscles. That you are prepared to step up and take responsibility in the sphere that you can. Otherwise, you are hoping that a woman is going to step up and take responsibility for you. And you do not want that kind of marriage. Some men are single because they're holding out for the dream woman. They've got a hidden spreadsheet of qualities that you seek in a perfect woman. This woman can cook like Nigella Lawson, has the sacrificial character of Mother Teresa, and the body of Megan Fox. Stop it, guys. Get real. Look for competence, character, and chemistry. Final comment for unmarried people. Keep yourself from idols. Sex and marriage are good gifts, but they can become idols when we make them ultimate. We need to ask ourselves, am I single because the Lord wants to teach me something at the moment? We're God's sons and daughters. If he doesn't give us the partner or the sex or the success that we long for, it's because he knows best. He has a bigger agenda. He's making us like Jesus. He wants us to long for the real treasure of knowing Christ. Marriage or sex can become an idol in our hearts. When we can't have it, we feel bitter towards God. God is prizing our fingers away from it so that we can grasp him and the greater treasure that we have in Jesus. You may not have a spouse, but you do have the living God. Here's what he says. My son, my daughter, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. And that leads to our final brief point. We have a great saviour. You know, preaching about the seventh commandment, inevitably brings up our sexual past, and we know that we are both sinners and sinned against. It's important to learn about radical sexual purity. It's important to learn about making marital sex a place of greatness. But that should not be our main focus in life, and it's not our main focus today, and that's why I want to end here. Because the focus of the Bible is not on sex. The focus of the Bible is not on our sin or our marriage. We've got to be captured by a bigger vision. In the new creation, Jesus said, there is no marriage or giving in marriage. And yet we also know that in the new creation, there's no sorrow, mourning, tears or pain. So in other words, in the new creation, the world to come, we're not going to be married, we're not going to be having sex, and we'll be really happy about it. How does that work? At its best, sex is joy, intimacy, and completion. Joy, intimacy, and completion. And in the world to come, these will be experienced on a scale that we can barely imagine now. We'll still have bodies. We'll still be recognisable. We won't all be like the Borg, you know, absorbed into one. Resistance is futile. We'll be individuals. Jesus, you could still be recognised with his new body. He was still a man. But it was glorious. Heaven is better than sex. And if that sounds impossible, then your view of heaven is not big enough. 
The Bible teaches there's a future that's better than anything we've ever yet experienced. But maybe we've caught a glimpse of it. Maybe you've caught a glimpse of it in the joy and intimacy of friendship. Those precious times where you feel that someone really understands me. Maybe you've caught a glimpse of it when you suddenly encountered beauty. You climbed a mountain and you you saw an astonishing landscape. You had your breath taken away by a, a, a glorious sunset. You saw the night sky and it just, it stopped you in your tracks. You caught a a snatch of music that was achingly beautiful and spoke to your heart of a better country. And then it's gone. Have you ever felt so happy that you could burst? You wanted just to stop there? You could scarcely contain it? You felt so satisfied? Peace at last? That is what it is like to live with Jesus Christ. To experience intimacy and joy. Someone who understands me. To see true beauty. To be at rest. Peace. Utterly fulfilled. Now those few and fleeting moments that we get from time to time are like little text messages from the world to come. They remind us that we were made for God and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And one day we will find our rest in him. And then we shall, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. And that future is possible because Jesus was faithful. He is the true man. He demonstrates complete fidelity. He never strayed from the path that God had given him. He never betrays your trust or lets you down. Jesus Christ is the perfect husband. A completely self-sacrificing man. And although he died a virgin, age 33, he rose from death and he reigns triumphant and he will get his bride. Her name is the church. And at its best, every human marriage is just a little picture of the joy, intimacy and completion that awaits the whole people of God as they wait for that consummation when we finally see the bridegroom. When he stretches out his nail-scarred hands at the wedding and says, Welcome, I love you. Enter into your everlasting bliss. Let's be captured by a bigger vision. You shall not commit adultery.